This is the current federal tax developments for the week of October the 9th, 2023. Current federal tax developments are brought to you by Kaplan Financial Education and by your state Society of CPAs. Medzollers, and we're going to talk briefly this week about some things that have come up because I know we're heading down to the due date here in one week uh, for the ultimate due date for 2022 calendar year individuals and C-Corps. So let's get running on this briefly. We're going to first look at a case this week where sloppy records cost a CPA the vast majority of his business deductions. We'll also talk about the IRS issuing a warning this week about promotion. They've been doing a few of these, remember. Uh, but in this case, promoters are pushing art deduction tax promotions that are aimed at high-income taxpayers, uh, primarily to end up having them purchase art and then a little over a year later contribute it at a highly inflated value to a cooperative charity. And then finally, we're going to find out the IRS has issued proposed regulations and a revenue procedure that relates to the uh, transfer of the vehicle credits, the new and uh, used vehicle credits for electric vehicles in 2024 that you can do at the time of purchase. We'll talk about some of the issues of that, how the program works, and also some of the potential pitfalls. But we'll take a look at that as we move forward. Let's start by looking at the case of Amundsen versus Commissioner. This tax court summary opinion 2023-30. The opinion came down on October 3rd. And as a practical matter, this particular case is a case of a CPA who, shall we say, had a tax return that first looked really weird if you knew anything about preparing a return and knew anything about a tax practice, you would really wonder what makes sense about how the Schedule C was prepared. And then secondly, we discovered that in any event, he had very, very sloppy records. And at the end of the day, you're going to find the tax court doesn't have a lot of sympathy for a tax professional, you know, who has been, you know, who basically is holding themselves out as such and is a CPA, EA, or attorney. You just don't get much sympathy from the court when you come in. So while they might let some things be a little more understanding for somebody not trained in tax and accounting, they tend to have very little sympathy for CPAs who, in theory, should know how that stuff works. You know, that's basically part of the deal. Now, the reason his Schedule C looked weird is because his tax practice, his CPA, really only had two entries on it. It had gross receipts on it. And then it had a cost of goods sold that just had a, you know, essentially a single number that said other costs. And that was somewhat greater, not, not hugely, but somewhat greater than his fees. Now, of course, the problem we've got here is what exactly is a sole proprietor's cost of goods sold in a service sole proprietorship? It would seem somewhat limited. Maybe if you stretched it, you could say the paper that he prints a return on, assuming he's hand out printed copies. Um, I, it seems like it'd be a very limited thing. And generally, again, we don't use inventory accounting on a service business, especially not a CPA practice or similar. So in any event, it's odd to see it that way. And as you might guess, that caught the IRS's attention. Why in the world is it this way? As well, not giving any details of what's in that cost of goods sold, 
you know, and not, not even using things like purchases and the like, you know, at least the lines that make some sense, but just simply having other costs and putting a number in there. Now, as you might guess, that looks a little suspicious. Now, I don't know about you, but I would probably have some questions if a client came in and only gave me that type of information about, wait a minute, you know, what, what, what's in these costs, right? You know, what do you have to back these up? What's there? In any event, he went forward with this. Now, the numbers on this return were, as I recall, somewhere just over $60,000 in fees and, you know, and a similar amount in deductions. And this CPA was, you know, working in New York City. Now, we don't hear for sure on his return what all was there, but it certainly sounds like to me at 60000 in fees in New York City that he's probably doing this as a part-time gig. And that's kind of the issue here. And unfortunately, it's easy for people to just get sloppy with it. You know, the cobbler's, well, the cobbler's children don't have shoes. Well, the CPA's practice doesn't have an accounting in it because it's just not much there. So we have a little fun with his records. Now, the court took very little time in just getting rid of cost of goods sold. There are no cost of goods sold in a service practice. So they immediately said, look, that's gone entirely. Right now, what we'll let you do, though, is rescue any expenses otherwise you can document. We're not even going to deal with that, you know, big chunk lump sum. So, you know, Mr. CPA, can you please tell me what's in there? You know, uh, admitting, because the CPA admitted at trial that, well, yeah, there isn't really a cost of goods sold and it shouldn't be on that line. Okay. So what is in there? And of course, he claimed that he added up all of these expenses and had various items, but his documentation was bad. At the end of the day, the court only allowed of the over 60 plus thousand dollars worth of expenses claimed, remember just over what he had, uh, just over what he brought in in revenue, they only allowed $6,238 of the expenses. And they were for his tax software, uh, a $50 fee, the California Board of Accountancy, and then a $500 fee to the Public Companies Accounting Auditing Oversight Board, which makes you really work. I mean, I'm a little worried about the SEC work you might be doing, you know, in this regard, considering how sloppy he is here. But nevertheless, that, that was there too. And otherwise, he really, you know, things were disallowed. Now, many things were disallowed just because he had no real backup whatsoever there. And he didn't even have a reasonable way to estimate expenses. So the Cohen defense wouldn't work for him. Remember, under the Cohen defense, if it's clear expenses have been incurred and they can be reasonably estimated, then an allowance will be given for, the, for an expenses for deductions, but only, you know, basically taking into account that the taxpayer is responsible, at least unless there are circumstances indicate why the taxpayer is missing it, that, you know, why I don't have the documentation that would suggest that we should, you know, cut the taxpayer some slack. You know, they, they, they were basically, I remember years ago when Katrina hit in New Orleans, there were some, you know, some firms that had paper records because they're more, we had more paper records at that time. And when the flooding came, it just literally carried the paper records out to sea. So, you know, for various businesses. So it's like, well, that's a reasonable excuse. And, and we, we can grant you more leeway in that case. But in this case, you have a trained CPA 
trained in accounting, no reason why he shouldn't have had records, but he just doesn't have them. So the court's not going to cut him a lot of leeway. And then here's the other problem. Even if you have, even under the Cohen rule, there are still some expenses you can't claim without documentation. And one of the big ones are any travel expenses. Now, travel expenses are not just travel out of town on, you know, when you fly out of town for a meeting, you have a hotel room, etc. It's that that is counted in this mix. But what also counts in that mix is car use, right? Use of the car, travel, you know, local travel that's deductible. And that includes things like auto mileage. And while the auto mileage rule does, you know, the special rule for the per mile setting for auto mileage does allow us to claim auto claim a deduction, even though we don't have backup on all the expenses, we still have to have backup and proof for the mileage. And of course, that turns out to be a problem in many cases, and it turns out to be a problem in his case. So in essence, have that the same thing we talk about hotel rooms for per diem. Uh, you know, the, the court said, look, you know, he was kind of vague about when he did it. He had, he had a calendar and he'd point to that and swear that, that that would prove what he was doing. But the calendar really didn't say why he was going into, into, the, into New York. It sounds like, you know, he would hold meetings in New York City, lived outside of New York City. Um, so he'd say he'd meet with clients there, but he had no real documentation about what he did. He just had a calendar that said he went into the city. Well, why'd you go in the city? You know, there's lots of reasons. It could be going for a Broadway show. You know, it could be going in there for, you know, various other things. There, there are other things to do in New York City besides just hold a meeting with somebody. And so the court said, you know, we have no backup for this. We don't know what any of these meetings are. And the bottom line, which is important to remember, while you get Cohen, you get some Cohen relief, potentially, or items that aren't covered by 274, 274D, the problem is for those things covered by the documentation rules, we have to have the documents in place. And in this case, he didn't. And the result in those cases when you don't have the documentation is not the court allows something. The court allows zero. This is a zero allowance with no documentation situation. So you can't just reason your way out by saying, well, clearly he traveled some. So we, we think it's reasonable to say he traveled at least 500 miles. Uh, no, that, that kind of back, back of the envelope math does not work if you get to tax court on the expenses. Now, somebody's going to tell me that they got an agent to buy it, and that's great. You can get an agent to buy it, fine. J just like if, if you can get, you know, if you can talk the, uh, the police officer out of writing you the speeding ticket, that's fine. But if you end up in court and they can show your my, how fast you were going, then you better have a better reason than, you know, just, ah, can't you let me skip this time? Yeah, it's probably not going to work quite as well. In this case, the court's very clear. They're saying, look, Congress said no deduction without this backup. You don't have the backup. No deduction means zero. No deduction does not mean, ah, eh, we'll cut you some slack. We can only cut you slack on expenses that Congress didn't say. We don't want you doing that. So the Cohen rule doesn't work here for this purpose. So he lost all of those deductions. He also claimed that he used 40% of his home exclusively for business. 
Now, he had no real evidence of this fact. Secondly, 40% is a lot of a home to use for business. I mean, uh, unless we're talking a very, very small apartment that has a couple of rooms. And I realize in New York City, maybe that's more possible, but it didn't say he looks. He appears he was traveling into the city, so it doesn't appear he lived in the city. Uh, but in any event, you know, it, it seems very unlikely that 40% of his home would be used. That first thing is it's not really plausible. But secondly, he could offer no evidence of this issue and that it was exclusive use. So because of that, the court also denied his home office deduction. Now, as I said, maybe you could have gotten a little more allowance on the, non, on the expenses not barred by the anti-Cohen rules, and maybe you could have gotten a little leeway on the home office if he hadn't been a CPA. But the court is going to take that into account. You know, why wouldn't a CPA have kept it? It's, it's tough to come up with an idea that he's not aware it should be kept. That, you know, that he, it was just he decided not to do it. And the court is the court will usually presume probably correctly that the reason you didn't do it is because you wouldn't qualify. Right. Or you'd qualify for very little. So you want to go ahead and just not have records and then use these numbers and then be able to try to defend yourself by saying, well, you know, I thought it was about this and all of those issues. Also, not surprisingly. This guy got hit with accuracy related penalties, a 20% uh, negligence penalty, right? Or a substantial understatement penalty, right? Either one of those, it doesn't matter. Th th this would be negligence in this case. The court would have no trouble finding it. The court would find no reasonable cause here, right? He's a CPA. He should have known better. And the fact that maybe you're retired or the fact that maybe you're doing it as a side gig doesn't change the fact that you're an accountant who's been trained and who understands these rules. And the reaction would be the same probably for an EA or attorney that got in this. You know, you guys have been trained and either you've been trained specifically in tax issues, a CPA, EA, or you've been trained in the law in general and you should have been able to figure out what the law required, right? You know how to read that stuff. You know how to research that stuff. You should have figured out what the law requires and we're going to hold it against you if you didn't because you obviously didn't use the skill sets that you're telling everybody you have. And if you don't have those skill sets, maybe we should talk with the State Board of Accountancy, the OPR, or you know, the State Bar about you know, your licensing situation. Because theoretically, it appears that you might be uh, a danger to the public if you really couldn't figure out how to do this. You know, so we got to assume you just didn't. And if you just didn't, then we also have to come down on the fact that that's negligence. That, that's just intentional, willfully not doing something. Now, what's interesting about this, and I, I've said this before, I've, over the years, I've read a lot of cases. I read a lot of them. And what's always been interesting to me is I always get a little nervous when I read a case and I find out early on that, that the taxpayer in the case is a, you know, they're basically the following are the issues like this may go very badly. We have a CPA. We have an EA, we have an attorney, or we have a former IRS agent, IRS employee. Now, those four categories tend to go badly because A, if in fact what they were doing, now, if you're actually going bleeding edge, right, if you're actually pushing it, you can go back to the old case we know well here in Phoenix of Feldman versus Commissioner, uh, which 
unfortunately got, got reversed by Congress indirectly, but that, that was the office and home for an employee deduction, uh, you know, for expenses related to that income rent paid by the employer to the party. And Ira, who may be listening to this this week, uh, well, well known, you know, he did that. He took it to court. He won. But that was a case of somebody who knew the IRS was likely to fight and who you know understood what's going on. Unfortunately, the number of ones that are like that are way lower than the number of ones that are just clueless. They're not going to win this thing. So if you're not pushing a case or trying to set an example, then most likely if you have an arguable case, you're going to realize you probably have that. And you and they are probably going to come to a reasonable accommodation at appeals, if nothing else. So it's unlikely it would end up in court, right? That, that, that's simply the way it is. And, and if it does end up in court, because let, let's say you had an incompetent agent, an incompetent conferee, your things are going really bad for you. Uh, the, uh, the reality is that almost certainly when it gets to the IRS counsel's office, they're going to notice how bad the case is, and they're going to say, well, I don't think we want to go forward with this. You know, we're suing a CPA, or, you know, or we're going against a CPA, an attorney, an EA, you know, former IRS employee. You know, th these guys know more than the average person about how this works or should. So, you know, maybe we should look at this a little more detail and then decide to bail potentially or settle. So, yes, too often there are just horrid cases that, you look at them and go, there was no way th this thing was winning. There was no way, right? Maybe you're going to try to see if you can get into a settlement prior to trial, but otherwise give up. You know, you know, you should have negotiated for no penalties and just pay the tax. You know, tried to get out of that. Now it is possible, as bad as it this was, you couldn't even get there. But there's no reason to go to court. It's just going to be embarrassing. And unfortunately, that that's happens too often in these cases I read. And as I say, it doesn't happen real often, so that may make us feel a little better. But we do run into these cases regularly, you know, at least, you know, a couple of two, three, four times every year, at least, where you find this sort of fact pattern. It's sad, but unfortunately true. Next up, we're going to talk about an IRS news release, 2023-185, came out on October 5th. And this deals with, again, abusive tax promotions. And this has become something we've seen quite a bit of the, from the IRS this year. Um, and you know, uh, the employee retention credit goes in its own category. But even aside from that, we've seen a number of IRS uh, notices, actions, other issues related to marketed tax programs. And the issue to remember about something like this and why I think these news releases are useful is not because they really change the law, they don't. But it does tell you something's on the IRS's radar. And that means probably if you have a client trying to claim a deduction, or in this case, a donation of art to a charity, uh, you're, you know, the back of your mind, you're thinking because they have an interest in this area, there's a, you know, there, there is now a heightened chance the service may want to look at this. And so you want to make sure that all the ducks are in a row and that you have solid appraisals that all the, you know, all the documentation's right. So you have the, all the things you need in terms of contemporaneous receipts, you know, acknowledgements from the charity, the statement you didn't get anything, you know, the, the proper sign off, it's worth one to five grand. 
uh, and the proper appraisal documents going with the returns. You want to get all that right because you realize the chances of the exam are a bit higher. What the IRS states in this news release is they have become aware of high-income individuals are being approached and sold a program where they're going to make a deductible contribution of art to a charity, okay, and basically claim the tax deduction. Now, there's nothing wrong with that, right? If, if, if you have a, you know, if you have a piece of art that is worth and, you know, the appraisals back that up, maybe even recent sales back it up, right? You know, we, we've had this particular artist, pieces of this sort, we can get a lot of comparables. So maybe it's worth, you know, let, let's say we got this piece of art worth a half million dollars. So yes, you can make that contribution. You can then claim the contribution on your 1040 and subject to the percentage of AGI limitations, you know, you can claim it and then carry it forward if necessary. So that's not what's wrong. But the problem is most of us don't have a half million dollar piece of art lying around or likely any sort of art that's, you know, worth anywhere near enough to, you know, make sense for us to make the contribution, get the appraisals, etc. I mean, you know, I, I can stare around here looking at my place and I've got some stuff hanging up, but it's nothing, you know, a lot of it's prints. A lot of the prints are ones that had been, you know, have tons of copies made. They weren't really a super limited edition. It's unlikely those are worth much of anything. And it's wildly unlikely any museum would be interested in them. Nor are they likely to be interested in pictures that I have taken and that have had framed. It's like they're probably not interested in that either. So bottom line, most people just don't have this stuff lying around to donate. And that's true even of higher income individuals. You know, they just don't have it lying around. But these promoters are going to fix that problem. Okay. So what they do, and this is the start of it. Obviously, in order to donate art, we have to have art. Now, probably if you have art, you know, things in your house, even if they're worth maybe a bit more than you paid for them, uh, you probably have them because you like them and you want to keep them. So we need art we can dispose of and that we won't care of getting rid of. So these guys come up with a, hey, we've got this. You're going to buy the art from us, right? But we're going to have you buy from this artist, right? This artist's work. And you're also going to purchase other services from us. So the promoter makes money off various things, gets various fees, Plus, most likely is pocketing and writing up the uh, art that they're getting from the artist. So the artist produces this art and then, you know, they, they write it up and they sell it to you along with these other services. Okay, great. Except you look at that and go, well, that's fine. But, you know, if I pay, let, let's say, let's say even it's a legit value. I, I pay $50,000 for this piece of art. And while if it's worth 50 grand, I donate it, you know, uh, basically in a year plus from now, it's worth 50 grand. I would get a 50 grand deduction, but here's my problem. At best, I'm going to save, let's say, even with a high state tax, I'm going to probably at best save maybe slightly over 50%. So just over $25,000 of tax, I paid 50. My, my simple math tells me if I spend 50, and all I get is a reduction in expense of 26, I'm out 
And well, sadly, there are people that don't understand that and would jump at that. So the promoters have an advantage that, you know, you, you can sell it to stupid people without having to worry about getting it written up or doing anything to make it worth more. If, if your high income person is at all has any sophistication, they should figure out that that math doesn't work. So what we have to do is have it worth a lot more when we donate it to the charity. So, of course, for that to work, it needs to be capital gain property, long term capital gain if sold. So we need to hold it for more than a year. OK, fine. But the value, you know, let's get to the value. How are we going to fix the value problem here? Well, they're going to you're going to obtain an inflated valuation. You're going to obtain a valuation. So we pay 50 grand for it. Let's say that we are getting a 50% reduction in income taxes. Okay, I break even at 100 grand. I know I'm going to pay the promoter, right? Other fees and stuff. So I need this painting now to be worth, let's say, and then to make it worthwhile to me, I may need this painting to be worth 200 grand, right? Maybe 150, let's say. Let's get a little less greedy. So I need to have it, let's say, be worth 150,000. Let's say, we're all in 50 grand on what we paid for the painting and you know all the expenses we're paying the promoter and, and the appraiser. So let's say that I need to get it to 150 and then that'll reduce my taxes by $25,000, presumably. Let's say if I have that much ordinary income to offset and okay, you know, now, now it makes sense. Now I might consider buying it. Of course, the problem is, why is it worth 150 a year after it was sold for well less than 50 grand? Because we have to factor those other fees in there, right? And especially if the promoter sold it to you, we didn't buy it directly from the artist, you know, and the artist wasn't kicking back money to the promoter. So how much did the artist really get? So, you know, if that painting really only paid the artist, it was only like he could sell it for five grand only into a scheme like this. Yeah, there, there's a question why it's now worth 150. That's the obvious problem as you run into. Now, it's even better because, hey, if this works, we'll just have you buy one every year. So we're going to get you $25,000 every year net, right? $75,000 of savings, but you pay me fifty. dollars So we're going to basically make you $25,000 a year forever. And all you got to do is stay in the program. Okay. And that's how it's sold to these people that, that somehow magically they will continue to buy art that just goes up in value amazingly, right? Now, not surprisingly, you've got, any, got to have a cooperative charity. So quite often they will arrange for charities and then there are probably a few more fees here because the charity is probably also getting a bit of money out of this deal. And, or, you know, so they're getting away and potentially they're, they're also selling the art back to the promoter indirectly. So it gives the promoter another piece of inventory which they can sell off. So it's going to be sold back at a really cheap price, whatever. But the charity's in here in some way, shape, or form, because the charity obviously, you know, needs to be in there. They need a charity and they've got to make it worth their while. So they do, because the art in question is not something they're going to be using really for anything. Now, let's talk about some of the obvious warning flags. Okay, how do you know? First thing is, I don't know about you, but I have trouble believing anybody can spot a piece of art today that's going to be worth three times as much a year from now. Do it consistently and do it every year. 
because if we know for sure that's going to be worth three times more a year from now, somebody should be willing to buy it for more than this artist is willing to sell. The artist should be able to get far more money for it if we know that there's going to be a ready market to buy it, you know, in three years for the inflated price. So they're just a promise too good to be true. But one of the flags is all the art you're going to buy is from the same artist. And this artist has little or no market action aside from the promoter. So we've never seen a piece of art of this artist sold, no track record aside from sales going to the promoter or being controlled by the promoter in some way, shape or form. So essentially, we just have somebody creating this stuff, kind of like those little NFT fun things, right? You know, you can now use AI to generate all kinds of weird stuff. Uh, well, the NFTs, they just use computers to randomize, but same, same idea. It's like, you know, they're, they're, they're just production line creating quote unquote art um, and just creating something and throwing that out. Uh, and they're just, you know, they're, they're being paid for the for volume of production, which also suggests it may be tough for this artist. Any of these artists, this artist's work to be worth a lot, you know, if they're flooding the market with their stuff. Right. Everybody can have one of these they want. Probably nobody wants one, but hey, you know how it works. Number two, and th this is obviously you need a cooperative appraiser. So it should be a huge red flag if the guy promoting the deal has the appraiser who's going to sign off on it. And as well, when you look at the appraisal in question, it's pretty clear it's substandard, right? It's, it's you know, you get these ridiculous one, you know, one paragraph appraisals. No real study, no work, no description about how they arrived at the number. They just get an appraiser to sign off on it. And of course, the appraiser's being paid. Now, the IRS in this thing wants to warn you. Well, you know, again, we go back to that old theory that sometimes you hear people say, well, you know, so what? If I get caught, I'll pay it back. A uh, couple of problems here. First problem uh, for the taxpayer is that you're almost certainly going to pay it back with penalties. In essence, the IRS theory in court is probably going to be that you knew or you should have known that this didn't make sense, right? There's no way that this works. You can't be that stupid is effectively the line. Uh, you probably didn't get any competent third party to give you a separate opinion on whether or not this deduction was valid. You probably didn't get any sort of, you know, inquiry because if you let's say you showed an attorney, a CPA EA who has no ties to the promotion. Right. You showed them the documents they gave you. You showed them what you had. Right. And they, you know, there is there's virtually no chance they're going to say, oh, it's all fine. And they're going to ask you why you didn't do that. You know, why did you only accept? And this is probably the huge one. This goes back to neonatology case. You cannot claim reliance upon the promoters. Assurances about the tax treatment or agents of the promoter, and that would include attorneys who they've gotten opinions from or supposedly have. Uh, and it, it will include anything of that sort. It doesn't matter if the promoter claims they've been in art for, you know, for 50 years, you know, they're, they're expert, they're all this stuff. It's not because again, everything depends on, you know, they don't get paid anything unless you buy in. 
So you can't rely on them for your advice. They clearly have a conflict of interest. You need to go to somebody who doesn't and who just will look at it and say yay or nay, right? Whichever way you go, it's going to be the issues. The other problem is the charities. Charities are risking their exempt status if they participate in programs like this. In essence, they're being operated for a private benefit, right? They are essentially being used as a mechanism to sell this tax promotion deal and benefit the promoter. That's called situations that can lose you your exemption. So again, for the charity, it's not just a, oh, there's no problem. We take this stuff in. We accept it, right? We sign off on the 8283s. Uh, you know, everything's fine. Uh, no. Now, if you get involved in this, it's, you know, there's a decent chance your own exemption can be in trouble. So that's a potential problem. Finally, we're going to talk about the IRS issuing proposed regulations and a revenue procedure related to the, uh, the upcoming program that begins in 2024 where somebody buying an electric vehicle for which a tax credit is allowed, the 7,500 or the, you know, the, the tax credit for the new vehicles, the tax credit for the used vehicles, now not the commercial credit, that's not in this mix. Uh, but that that usually, though, the credit goes to, believe it or not, the leasing, you know, in, in essence, we, we've talked about the workaround there where a leasing company, you know, like the leasing company for Audi uh, can, in essence, claim the credit for buying the car from Audi and then reduce this purchase price, reduce the cost to the ultimate uh, consumer that signs the lease uh, based on that reduction. So we've talked about that one indirectly before. I'm not going to talk about that here because that, that gets around the whole uh, limits on cost of the vehicle and the limit on the taxpayer's income, which is a whole nother issue. We're talking about here, though, the straight up one that is based on, you know, where you buy, literally buy the vehicle. OK, uh, if you remember, beginning in 2024, we're going to be able to, instead of having to wait to the end of the year and claim that $7,500 credit on our income tax return. We can assign the credit to the dealer at the time of purchase, right? And so these proposed regulations and the revenue procedure, this is regulation 113064-23, revenue procedure 2023-33, both of which came out October 6th. So instead of, you know, waiting to the end of the year, we can assign it to the dealer who will be able to get the $7,500 directly from the IRS and based on that, but they have to then either give you the customer the $7,500 when you buy the car, or they have to reduce the cost, either make it as a down payment or reduce the cost of the vehicle by $7,500. So that's the way this works. So basically the buyer assigns it. Now it is the buyer's election, not the dealer's election. So the buyer elects to do this or not. And that's because, remember, the buyer's on the hook, right? If the buyer doesn't qualify for this credit because they don't meet the income limits, if the buyer doesn't qualify for the credit, then we're going to run into trouble, right? Because the buyer has to pay it back. So because of that, we don't know that there's going to be a safe of credit. A couple of reasons why there may not be. Number one, they may not meet the income limits. Number two, they just may not have $7,500 worth of tax. 
right? So there are various odd reasons why they might not get the full credit. So basically, you know, the buyer's at risk here. It will not be the car dealer that has to pay this back. It is the buyer. That's why the buyer has to make the election. The buyer can just say, forget it. I'm just going to take it, you know, and work, go on my own, right? Now, this payback program, this assigned to the dealer program, will be available for both the new credit for new vehicles and the used credit. Now, remember, these credits are subject to uh, limitations based on the taxpayer's income. So for a married filing joint return for an individual, for a couple, that would be $300,000 of income in the current year or the immediately preceding year. And for the uh, used vehicle, it's going to be a, going to be in essence for the married couple, AGI of $150,000. And, you know, for the new vehicle, and then only 75 for the used. So, you know, we have to watch our income limitations here. And they're really important because if you haven't noticed, most EVs being sold are not incredibly inexpensive, but that brings up the other issue. But this one, the dealer knows. Does the manufacturer's list price uh, effectively, is it above the limit? Because if it is, then you don't qualify either. So that's in there as well. Okay. So we have that. Now, the regs do have some special anti-abuse rules. First, this is kind of obvious. Okay, we, we, you take the car, you buy the car, right? You drive it off the lot. You have your Mustang Mach-E, you've taken it off the lot. You're driving it around. And, you know, let, let, let's say that, that you know, and, and you decide you're going to return the car. Or for whatever reason, you don't qualify for the financing, even though it lets you drive it off. So then you turn around, you return the car, right? Or if you immediately resell the car, you turn around and resell the car, right? If that happens within certain time frames, there are going to be recapture rules that require the same $500 to be paid back, right? So bottom line, you have to be aware that that's there. So don't, don't start thinking, well, we're just going to go out and buy this. Also, I should add, you're only allowed to use the credit twice, two credits per year, right? So the credit can only be claimed twice per year. Now, obviously, you have to have enough tax to make that work anyway, but it also means that you can't just make money off. You can't just keep buying EVs, you know, and then probably that you have no intention, you know, of doing anything with, except you think they go up in value. After this year and what's happened to the Teslas in terms of prices and how EV prices have been dropping, I'm not sure I'd buy them assuming they'll go up in value. But, you know, but let's say they did, then, you know, that, that's not going to work for you. You also, the taxpayer will have to pay back the entire credit if they don't file a tax return in a year the vehicle's placed in service. And a year it's placed in service is going to be the year it's bought. So taxpayer must file a return. Again, you, taxpayers can't just disappear and go off the grid. If they do, they just owe it back. Automatic repayment required if the taxpayer does not file income tax return. There also is a no double benefit rule, some special rules if a car is sold under both the new credit and the used one. Uh, but in any event, generally, you have to reduce the basis of the vehicle you buy by the amount of the credit that you receive. So let, let's say you buy an EV, it had a price of $70,000, you got a $7,500 credit, You'd have to reduce the basis of the vehicle to 62500 
that would be your basis for gain or loss, assuming that you're using it in a way that you could claim the loss, gain, you know, and loss is more likely than gain. Uh, it would also be your basis for depreciation if you later depreciated the car. So you have to reduce the basis by that amount. That, that, that's involved in that. And again, we don't want people getting a double benefit. So that's important, right? Now, this regulation applies to sales after December 31st, 2023. The revenue procedure provides diesel work. And again, it's proposed regs, but obviously they have to apply to 24. So for practical purposes, it's going to apply to the beginning of 24. And presumably, if the IRS doesn't finalize by then, uh, they'll end up turning around and you know, at least uh, having anything before the date of the final regulations be able to use proposed regs, even if the proposed regs, you know, are later changed and somehow made more restrictive. Now, the revenue procedure has more details about how we're going to operate this because, you know, we'll get into that. One thing which happens and is under the statutes there, this goes through the procedures the dealers are going to have to go through to register for the program. A dealer cannot participate in this program until they register into it, right? And they can be removed for various reasons. So the dealer is going to do it. So if they violate the parameters, they can be removed, etc. When the when the car is sold and it's eligible for this, you know, situation, and the dealer is going to offer this option to take the credit back, they must give the buyer disclosures, and these are disclosures about some of the tax limitations here. You know, the fact that you need to have your income's got to be below these limits, either in either the prior year, you know, the year before you buy it or in the year you buy it. That's going to be key for that to happen. Okay, in that case. Now, the buyer, therefore, will have to certify as part of their election when they request this. And it's going to, have to be sent in along with everything for the dealer to get the money that either they met the income limits for the previous tax year or they expect to meet them in the current tax year. Now, it doesn't require the buyer to give the, the car dealer a copy of the return to prove that, right? They, they don't have to prove they meet it. They have to give them projections and details about why in the world we would expect they could make this work. That's not required under these rules. Rather, they just need to sign the certification. Now, remember, they're on the hook if they don't, they don't meet it. So, that's a potential problem. As well, the election must be made at or before the time the sales takes place. If the sale takes place, you can't come back a week later and say, oh, I just heard about this. Can you give me $7,500? I'll assign this to you. Can you give me $7,500? No. No, you can't go in after the sale's done and change your mind. You have to make this election before the sale completes. You can't change your mind later. Okay, as I say, so if you have a client thinking of doing this next year, right, or you represent car dealers or you or you are with a car dealership and you're looking at the program, it's important, I think, for you to grab both the proposed regs and the revenue procedure to get into how the program is going to work for next year. This has been the Current Federal Tax Developments for the week of October 9th. As always, Current Federal Tax Developments are brought to you by Kaplan Financial Education and your State Society of CPAs. Uh, you can email me questions, edzollers at currentfulltaxdevelopments.com. Uh, also, I do watch the Connect sites for Arizona, New Jersey, uh, Minnesota, uh, I say Washington, Illinois. And I also do look at discussions that may pop up on Idaho's discussion board. 
so you can catch me there. Otherwise, uh, I know this may be a fun week for many of you, so uh, we all look forward to this week, I can tell. But in any event, we'll see. Now, next week, I will warn you, there is a really good chance we will either not be able to put this out or it will be delayed. So be aware of that, you know, because there are the deadline right there. It all depends upon how things are going in my practice. And if clients are, you know, the clients who finally read the returns, how many of those I'm dealing with as we approach the date. So we'll see about that. But we'll look at that next week as it comes up. But otherwise, I uh, want to thank you for uh, paying attention. And we'll see you back here in a week or two weeks for more current federal tax developments.